Praise God. You know, after Wednesday service, my wife and I were talking with Shannon, and Shannon, you said something that that just registered with me. When you're putting a sermon together, it's like you got all these pieces to a puzzle, and it's like, Lord, where, where do these pieces go? You know, and you're trying to make sure they're all in the in the proper place so that the message comes out the way He wants it to. Well, there's one piece that I'm not absolutely sure sure where to put it yet, or if He wants me to put it in there. So believe God with me this morning that I get this right, amen, and we hear it just the way he wants us to hear it. In fact, let's pray right now. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask your Holy Spirit to open our eyes today and make your word come alive in us. Help us to see what changes we need to make in our lives, and we purpose to be doers of the word today and not hearers only. Thank you for helping us and for transforming us into the image of your Son. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, let's open up to 1 Peter chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at verses 14 and 15. And I'm going to read this out of the Passion Translation. 1 Peter 1, 14 through 15. And it says, As God's obedient children, never again shape your lives by the desires you followed when you didn't know better. Instead, shape your lives to become like the Holy One, who called you. Amen? Of all the disciples mentioned in the New Testament, the one I can relate to the most is Peter. Time and again throughout the Gospels, his flaws are on display for readers throughout the ages to view and dissect. His impulsiveness, his temper, his arrogance and presumption, and his fear in the high priest courtyard when he denied his Lord. And yet, when you read this letter to the church, 1 Peter, which was written just a couple of years before his death in Rome, you're struck by how much this man had been shaped into the image of Christ. He's known as the Apostle of Hope because his words teach believers the living hope we have through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But for me, Peter's life also instills hope that we can all be changed. We don't have to remain as we are. It's good to remember when you've missed it for what seems like the millionth time. You've lost your temper. You've used a choice word or two. And you've spoken harshly to someone who wasn't living up to your expectations. Or maybe like Peter, you didn't tell someone about the Lord because you were afraid of what they would think about you. Can I get a witness there? (laughs) Amen. I'm, I'm with you, brother. The enemy loves to tell you you're never going to change. In fact, he'll say, you really haven't changed at all since you've become a Christian. In fact, you're nothing but a hypocrite. Amen, he is. The truth of the matter is we should give the enemy's words no place in our lives. Whether we have or haven't changed is irrelevant at this point in time. As long as we're breathing, we're pliable, Jesus is Lord of our life, God can continue to shape us. Amen. Isaiah 64, 8 in the NIV says, Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. And we are all the work of your hand. Clay is not fixed. It's malleable. It can be shaped. After the potter fashions and shapes the clay into the form he wants, he then puts it into the oven. He bakes it and glazes it. The clay is now permanently fixed. It's no longer pliable. 
The only way it can be changed now is to crush it and ruin it. The fact that the Holy Spirit says through Peter in our text to shape our lives to become like the Holy One indicates to me that the baking, burning, and glazing haven't happened to our human nature. We can still be shaped. We can still change. Amen? I may be a little bit naive here, but I think there is an innate hope in human beings that positive change is possible. Why else would someone who is bound to drug or alcohol addiction continue living day after day after day in the throes of their addiction? As long as there's a flicker of hope that he can change, the addict will put himself through another day on this fallen planet. It's when that flicker goes out that suicide seems like the only viable option to that person. But I'm here to tell you this morning, whoever you are, wherever you may be, old or young or in between, you are not yet a finished product. In Christ, there is always hope. And even after accepting Christ, you must remain pliable. God expects you to grow and develop and change into the image of his Son. You might ask, well, isn't it God who changes me? Yes, but you have a part to play in it. A.W. Tozer used the following illustration. Suppose a woman decides to go to the beach go to the beach and get a suntan. Where is the tan coming from? And what does the woman have to do with it? Well, we would answer, well, the sun is tanning the woman. But if she went to the beach with her arms, legs, torso, and face fully covered, the rays of the sun would have no effect on that woman getting a tan. She has to take the necessary step of cooperating with the sun by exposing her skin so the sunlight can do its work. That's exactly what Peter meant when he said in our text that we are to shape our lives. A believer shapes his life by exposing himself to the power of God, which then shapes him. Just as the woman at the beach could have worn clothing that would have prohibited her from getting a suntan, even though the sun might be shining in a cloudless sky, so a Christian may keep himself wrapped in his own stubbornness and never receive any of the grace that filters down from the throne of God where Jesus sits as our mediator. Tozer said, yes, it's possible for a Christian to go through life without very much change taking place. But such a believer is infantile and growth and development have not taken place because he refuses to cooperate and expose himself to the divine power that would shape him. It's also possible for a Christian to shape himself by exposing himself to the wrong kind of influences. Going back to the illustration of the woman getting a tan at the beach, as long as she exposes herself to the radiation from the sun in the proper way, she'll get the change she wants, tan skin. But what happens if she exposes herself to a different kind of radiation, say uranium? She'll be changed all right, but not in the fashion she desired. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, the Apostle Paul reminds us of the old influences that shaped our lives before we were saved. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Now that we've entered into a relationship with Jesus, 
We're told to put away those old forces that influenced us in the past. We're not to expose ourselves to them anymore. Well, you might ask, how are we supposed to avoid these things when our society and its media bombards us with messages and pictures aimed at stirring up the desires of the flesh and the mind? Let's look at the book of Ephesians to see how Paul addressed this question. The church at Ephesus was an established church that was growing in faith and love, and yet the pressures they faced in their society were not unlike those we encounter in our daily walk with the Lord. Let's give you a little give you a little background about the city of Ephesus. It was one of the great trade and commerce cities of the ancient world. It was a city visited by many travelers and businessmen, and it was built around pleasure. It was known for its worship of Diana, the goddess of fertility, and the temple dedicated to her worship drew people to the city from all around the Roman Empire. The culture of the city centered specifically around sexual pleasure. Fornication and idolatry were a way of life there. And where idolatry and works of the flesh are prevalent, you're also going to find demonic activity. Ephesus is where, as you recall in Acts 19, Satan worked through the seven sons of Sceva and tried to counterfeit the move of God happening through Paul. It's also where God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even the handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. So the book of Ephesians has much to teach us about spirit-filled life and our authority over Satan and his kingdom, which are both critical to us understanding how to bring about godly changes in our lives. The first half of the letter to the Ephesians deals with who we are in Christ. The second half deals with applying this truth in our everyday lives. I want to look primarily at the second half this morning. In Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, Paul starts by telling us how we are to walk. He said, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The word walk implies action, doesn't it? This is walking in the natural as a means of traveling from one place to another. In the spiritual, walking refers to traveling from immaturity to spiritual adulthood. Walking in both the natural and the spiritual must happen in steps, one at a time, if you want to avoid tripping. So don't get frustrated if your progress is slow in this Christian life. Amen? The word gentleness... And the King James says meekness. It's often misconstrued to mean weakness or being a pushover. It actually means to be teachable, to be someone who doesn't resist God. If you want to be changed, if you want to be pliable, you're going to have to be teachable and open to what God says to you in his word and by his spirit. Never come to a place in your Christian walk where you think you know it all. Ever been around those kind of Christians? <laughs> it's not pretty. I find the older I get, the more is I don't know. Things I thought I had all figured out don't seem to be as quite as crystal clear as they used to be. And it prompts me to dig deeper into the Word to, to find out and understand. Paul said we know in part. 
So there's always going to be a part you don't know. So stay teachable. Amen. Continuing with Ephesians 4.2. That word long-suffering means patience. Vine's Dictionary says, Patience is the quality that does not surrender to circumstances or succumb under trial. It's the opposite of despondency and is associated with hope. So if you're feeling despondent this morning, you no longer have hope. And if you have no hope, you can't operate in faith. Because faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Long-suffering then means hanging on to hope so you can stay in faith until the situation changes. And in the process, you will be changed. James 1, 2 through 4 says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That word perfect means mature. Maturing implies changing. You might say, well, how long do I have to wait until that situation changes? As long as it takes. There is no other answer. Hallelujah. Look again at Ephesians 4.2. Bearing with one another in love means making allowance for the faults and failures of others or for differing personalities, abilities, and temperaments. And it doesn't mean putting on a facade of courtesy while inwardly seething with resentment. It means allowing the love of God to work in and through you toward that individual. Ephesians 4.3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That word translated endeavoring means to be diligent or work hard. Maintaining unity between people of diverse beliefs and backgrounds is hard work. How many know we're never going to fully agree on doctrine? But we can and should agree on our mission. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Just keep it simple. There's enough flesh in every one of us to shipwreck a local church or any other work of God. But we must put aside our petty whims and preferences and work together in peace for the glory of God and the furtherance of his kingdom. Amen. We're talking about being pliable so we can change, church. Paul told us in verses 1 through 3 how to walk. Let's jump to Ephesians 4.17, and we'll see Paul telling us how not to walk. He said, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. Paul is telling believers to stop walking as unbelievers walk. How many know Christians can look and act just like sinners? When Christians become carnal, they're not controlled by the Spirit of God, and they act just like the world. There should be a sharp distinction between the outward life of a Christian and that of a sinner. The irony is that the world loves to call us out when they don't think we're living up to their preconceived standard of what a Christian should look like. So don't kid yourself. They're watching to see if we're walking the talk. Amen? We live in a world full of sin, a world perverted by the devil and the world system. But our outward lives should stand out as markedly different because of the knowledge of the Word of God inside of us. 
Jerry and I were talking this morning about how it seems like the world has just lost its mind. Well, perfect opportunity for us to stand out as lights. Amen. Glory to God. And because we're all at different levels in our knowledge of the word, we're going to display different levels of outward change. So let's not point fingers. There is a process of growing that we go through to get to the place where we can lay aside every sin. And that process takes time. When you're born again, the seed of God's life is planted inside of you. And that seed will grow as you study the word and fellowship with the Lord through his Holy Spirit, who is in you. And as it grows, the new life will start showing in your outward life. When the word is in you in abundance, the last thing you want to do is sin against the Lord and act like a heathen. I've heard it said by some that the most miserable people on the face of the earth are not sinners, but believers who are out of fellowship with the Lord. Some of us have been in church life long enough to agree with that statement. May it not be said of us. Brother Hagen said, this process of growth, this process of change, occurs as we receive the knowledge of the Son of God. He said to feed upon God's word until you gain a knowledge of the plan of God, which he planned and sent the Lord Jesus to consummate. He said, until you gain a knowledge of who you are in Christ and what Christ is in you. Feed on God's word until you gain a knowledge of what he did for you in his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and his seating at the right hand of the Father. Feed upon God's word until you gain a knowledge of what he's doing for you right now. Seated at the right hand of the Father where he ever lives to make intercession for you. He said, until you gain a knowledge of your standing before the throne of God. And until you gain a knowledge of the fact that he defeated Satan, demons, and all the forces and rulers of the darkness of this world are dethroned powers, and they cannot rule over you. And I would add that once you gain that knowledge, you continue feeding on his word, because walking in the light of his word, empowered by the Holy Spirit, is the only way we have power to put away sin and walk in the righteousness that God has given us through this new birth. Keith Moore told a story about a man who came to healing school at Ramah when Keith was ministering there. The man had been a successful attorney in a well-known local law firm. He had a beautiful wife and family. He was very affluent, but he had become an alcoholic, and it destroyed his marriage and his relationship with his children. It cost him his place in the law firm. He lost it all. When Keith met him, he was a broken man who came to healing school as a last resort. He sat under the ministry there throughout that week. And at the end of the week, he went up for prayer. And Brother Keith said the man was very attentive and very receptive when he laid his hands on his head. The man said later when Brother Keith prayed, it was like a band broke from off of him. And he could feel it. It was tangible. And that terrible gnawing. And craving for alcohol was gone. Brother Key said he knew by the Spirit that the man was delivered. But the Holy Spirit also prompted Keith to warn the man. He took the man's face between his hands and he looked him in the eye. And he said, hear these words well. You remember what Joseph did when he was tempted by Potiphar's wife? The man said, he ran. Keith told him, if you're tempted about liquor, 
You must run and never put yourself in a place where you can be tempted to drink again. He said one more time, it be all it takes for the devil to take you out. Well, the man was reconciled with his wife and children. His law firm took him back. He even got involved in mission work. A couple of years passed, and all was well. Then one day, everybody say one day, he was at lunch with some clients who were sipping some drinks at the table. And the man found himself staring at the drinks. And he reasoned within himself, I've been delivered. I can handle a little drink now. And so he got one. And he took a little taste. Four days later, they found him in an alley. He'd had a massive stroke, unable to speak or move. He was confined to a wheelchair from that point on. It matters what we expose ourselves to if we're going to change in the way that God wants us to change. Ephesians 5, well, I want to say many saints in the Bible fell into sin. Abraham, David, and Peter are just a few examples. Yet they went on to be used mightily by God after they changed. Ephesians 5, 15 through 17, and this is out of the New American Standard Bible. Paul wrote, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. How are you going to understand what the will of the Lord is so you can change in the way he wants you to change? It comes down to two things. Getting your face in this book and learning to be led by the Holy Spirit. It's not enough just to know the word. You can become dry. There are some very able Bible teachers out there in different denominations but they leave out the supernatural element of the Holy Spirit's ministry, and it feels lifeless when you listen to them. On the other hand, there are churches that focus solely on the supernatural, put little emphasis on the Word, and things get emotional and things get weird. There has to be a balance between knowing the Word and following the supernatural leadings of the Holy Spirit. One of my Bible teachers at Rhema wrote something that I find helpful in understanding how God works in all things. He taught that God the Father is the originator or architect of the plan. It could be the plan of creation, plan of redemption, whatever the plan, the Father is the architect, the originator. Jesus is the one who executes the plan. And the Holy Spirit is the one who reveals the plan to us through the Word of God and the gifts of the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit not only moved upon men to write God's plan, He moves upon us as we read it so we can understand and be transformed into the image of the Master. The Father planned that there would be specific ministers in what we call the fivefold ministries. So He was the architect of that. Well, who executed that? The Lord Jesus. He gave gifts to men, the Word says. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. For what purpose were these gifts given? Ephesians 4.12 and the New, New Living Translation says, To equip God's people, that's us, to do His work and to build up the church, the body of Christ. Jesus gives these gifts, which the Father ordained, 
And the Holy Spirit anoints the men and women who operate in these gifts to help reveal God's plan to believers so we can be changed and mature. We're blessed to be part of a church where the gifts of pastor, evangelist, and teacher are on full display. Amen? Glory to God. Ephesians 5.1 says, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children. It sounds a lot like the text we use from 1 Peter 1.15, the beginning of the message. Shape your lives to become like the Holy One who called you. Years ago, we added an addition onto the house we were living in at the time. And I did a lot of the work uh, with the help of a friend who had been in construction. My son, who was about three or four at the time, wanted to be out there doing what he saw Daddy doing. He wanted to imitate his father. So we gave him some wood and a hammer, and he had a ball just pounding and getting all dirty while we were out there putting this addition on. It makes me smile when I look at some of the old pictures we have of him from then. In your process of changing to imitate your father, there will be times when it feels like there's a lot of hammering going on in your life. But don't lose heart. In fact, remember these words that C.S. Lewis wrote. He said, imagine yourself a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. You knew that those jobs are needed doing, so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that doesn't seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting out an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. If we let him, for we can prevent him if we choose, he will transform the feeblest and filthy of us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. You can be changed, church. Amen. I want to pray this morning. And I think that other piece is coming up. (laughs) For those within the sound of my voice this morning who have never made Jesus Lord of your life, Now is the time. Don't wait another day. And here's the piece of that puzzle that I was looking for where it needed to go. Last time I spoke, I mentioned a little story about my older brother who was an attorney at the uh, district attorney's office in Rochester. And I told you he died in the 1990s. He was 46 years old. He was too young to be to die. He died an alcoholic, and he also died uh, abusing drugs. And uh, the shortly after I got saved, I tried witnessing to my brother, and his words still resound in my ear. He said, Dave, I don't need crutch of religion to live my life. And uh, so I never pursued telling him anymore about the Lord. However, when he had his first child, I, I sent him a book. Uh, it was written by a Christian attorney, 
and it was dealing with fam- raising a godly family. And I thought, well, maybe he'll read this because it was written by an attorney. And uh, after he died, and his death was ruled suicide by the medical examiner. Um, it may have been suicide. It may have just been foolishness. He took, they found alcohol and uh, drugs in his system that combined were lethal. Uh, after he died, my dad had collected uh, a lot of his stuff. And when I was able to go through it, I saw that book that I had gave him, that I had given him. And I was eager to see if there was any sign of wear and tear on that book. And I pulled it out, and to my disappointment, the spine had never been cracked. The pages were as crisp and flat as as uh, they were when I gave it to him. It looked like a brand-new book. No notes in it. So my assumption is he never read it. So he said he didn't need the crutch of religion for his life, but clearly he needed the crutch of something, alcohol and drugs, two crutches. And so I might be speaking to somebody today. I, I sense that somebody online might be listening either today or at some future event that uh, is in that kind of desperate situation. And that's why I'm saying don't wait another day. <clears throat> it doesn't matter what you've done or how far you've strayed. His mercy and forgiveness are available to you right now. I remember when my wife called telling me uh, she had gotten word that my brother had died first thought that came to my mind is he didn't know the Lord. Let that not be said of you today. Let's pray. Dear God, let's say this out loud after me, please. Dear God, I want to change. I don't want to continue living the way I've been living. I ask you to take my life and change it into something that is pleasing to you. Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Come into my life as my Lord and Savior. Make me a new person in you. And give me the strength to step away from this old life and begin walking with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, If you are watching this on live stream right now, we are putting up, uh, Shannon's going to put up a contact information. If you just pray that prayer, we want you to contact us and let us know that you've accepted the Lord. Because we want to rejoice with you. Amen? And uh, it'll be up there for them to see. Okay. Thank you. Hallelujah. And if somebody in this church prayed that prayer a minute and wanted to tell us about it, come and tell us. We want to rejoice with you. Hallelujah. Amen. Well, go and be changed, and you are dismissed. Hallelujah.